Welcome to Camarillo Community Church. My name is David Hurtado. I'm the lead pastor here. If you are our guest, uh, we are so glad to have you. I do this deal where I hang out afterwards. If you're not in a rush, man, come say hi. Love to kind of put a face with a name and get to know you, all those kind of things. I'll be on the patio afterwards. I love it when we do back-ended worship is what I call this uh, template of uh, service. And the reason is because my mind is always so focused on the message. I don't usually get very, very into worship into the second service if I haven't preached yet. But when we do back-ended, I get to just, okay, it's done. I can just focus on God. And so sometimes we just do that for me. So today we'll do that. Today we'll speak. And then afterwards we'll do some more worship together. And it's great to kind of respond and worship as well. So it should be a, a wonderful, wonderful time. If you came today and you forgot to bring your, your Target or your Walmart gift card for the uh, Fostering Hope Initiative we're doing this month, I have it on good information because my wife runs the, uh, the, the uh, tent out there that she'll take cash today, today only. Uh, if you forgot to get a card, you can, you can go there and we'll make sure that you're taken care of anyway. We want to fill up the flex capacitor today and we're excited about seeing how far we can go and how we can kind of tag team with other foster families as age taking kids. We're going to say we love you, we love what you're doing, and we want to support your efforts. Today I want to talk and kind of begin with the idea that perception is everything. It's amazing. Perception is a really interesting thing. How we perceive things, sometimes whether you perceive the glass is half full or, or half empty, and those type of, depending on the person, perception can really change your whole perspective on everything. Perception is everything. In fact, I'll give you a, a case in point. Uh, they say that every marriage, uh, most marriages will come to a place in the marriage where you have a take it or leave it moment. Um, this is like the, the moment where we're either going to stay together or we're going to separate. It's a true story. Most marriages will get to this take it or leave it moment. Sometimes the impetus for that would be like a midlife crisis and some of the decisions that happen with a midlife crisis. And so take it or leave it. This is who I am type of thing. Sometimes it can be an emotional affair or, or, or a, a extramarital uh, sexual affair. That could obviously lead to a take it or leave it moment. Uh, sometimes it's just years of growing apart. And we just, years are growing apart, we're going to, you know, do we, do, we, do we double down this thing or do we just split? And believe it or not, we all know this, that in America, 50% of those take it or leave it moments end up in what? Divorce, yeah, more than 50% uh, end up in divorce. But if you knew, I remember I had a, a counselor friend uh, when I was in San Francisco, and, and, I, and I was dealing with a lot of marital counseling issues, and I just said, is there anything, you, any kind of encouragement you can give me to help these couples out? And she said, yeah, I just wish that every one of those struggling couples knew that the majority of marriages do come to a take-it-or-leave-it moment, and obviously 50% or more of those end in divorce. But the ones that don't and the ones that press through and power through and work through it, that they have unbelievable statistics about how afterward, after they've worked through all these things, their marriage are even double what they could ever have imagined they would be. That the success of those marriages are off the charts because they've, they've gone down, they doubled down on work in the marriage, and all of a sudden now they can move forward and they get a marriage that they've never understood before. It was that take it or leave it moment that caused them to work out all the dysfunction over here so that all over here, they could have actually a wonderful marriage. And so she said, if you could just know, if you could just tell them in a weird way, people will say, I'm glad we almost lost our marriage. I'm glad we almost lost it because it caused us, to, that low point caused us to work on the things we needed to work on so that we could have the marriage that we do today. And imagine, just in a weird way, I'm glad the affair happened in a way. I'm not glad, but I'm glad it happened in a way because it caused us to work out all our dysfunction and now we love each other more today than we can ever have imagined in the past. That's what's there for you on the other side. And perception is everything. And so is that good or is it bad? 
Is it good or is it bad that you have this take it or leave it moment or there's this dysfunction that happens? Well, there's a sense where it's not very good, but there's a sense on the other side it can be very good. So which is it? Perception is everything. I want to see if I can show you this. I'm going to do something kind of unique here on the screen. I'm going, to, I'm going to flash up a slide, and I'm going to ask you to read it, but not read it out loud. I want you to read it internally. So just use your mind and read it internally. Don't, tell, don't, don't hit your neighbor and tell them what it says. Just internally read it. I'm going to put it up for about three seconds. I want you to read it and know what the slide says. Okay, can you do that with me? All right, but don't say it out loud. Okay, we'll put it up for three seconds. Here it goes. One, two, three, and we'll take it down. All right, did you, did you see what it said? You saw it? Okay, I'm gonna do it just one more time in case some of you guys are like yawning. All right, but one more time for three seconds you're gonna to get to see it. Here, here it is, ready? One, two, three. Okay, close the slide down. All right, did you get it? You know what it says? How many of you would raise your hand and say you saw this? God is nowhere. Raise your hand. God is nowhere. Look at all the hands. Very, very good. Not everybody saw that. Uh, raise your hand if you, if you saw God is now here. You see that? And we highlighted the words for you. Obviously, we put them in, we took out the spaces. So the same phrase, God is nowhere, God is now here. Same words, same letters, and yet we split the room in half. Did you see that? Isn't it interesting how the same people can look at the same screen, seeing the same words, and yet see something different? Perception really is everything. And that's kind of the situation we're going to see in our text today in the Bible. We're back in, uh, back in our series in the book of Mark. We've reached chapter 5. Give yourselves a hand. You're a third of the way there. And you've made it. And uh, we're going to keep on going. And we're going to kind of see this kind of thing happen in, in, in our text today. How perceptions of the same event can be different. How perception of the same event can be different. That Jesus' authority can be perceived, how it can be differently perceived by two different people groups. How demons can perceive his authority and how humans perceive his authority. How can two very different people groups see the same event and yet have differing perceptions. And so for that, we're going to be in the book of Mark. So you can open there now, Mark chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible with you, it's okay. Understand we'll have it on the screens. But if you do have a, a Bible with you or even on your phone, open it up and watch, uh, take notes, highlight, all that kind of stuff is all good stuff. And so the overarching question we're going to ask today is, what was ironic about Jesus's authority? So what was ironic about his authority? And the first thing we're going to see, the first part of the irony is that it was obvious even to spirit beings. Jesus' authority was obvious even to spirit beings. Spirit beings understood the authority of Jesus Christ. And so we're going to see that in chapter 5, verse 1. It says this. They went across the lake to the region of the, the uh, Gerasenes, is what I'm going to say. <laughs> when Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an evil spirit came uh, from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs. No one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often uh, been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. Pretty powerful guy. No one was strong enough even to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and cut himself with stones. When he saw Jesus at a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? Swear to God that you, will, you won't torture me. For Jesus said, had said to him, Come out of this man, you evil spirit. And really, that's the imperfect there. It's a better translation would be, And Jesus was saying to him over and over is the idea, Come out of him, you evil spirit. 
Verse 9, then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send him out of the area or into the abyss is the idea. A large herd of pigs was feeding on the nearby hillside and the demons begged Jesus, send us among the pigs, allow us to go to them. And he gave them permission and the evil spirits came out and went into the evil pigs. I mean, I'm sorry, it went into the pigs. <laughs> <laughs> That is funny on like five different, anyway. The herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed into the deep, uh, deep bank, into the lake, and they were drowned. All right, so what was ironic about Jesus' authority? Number one, it was obvious even to spirit beings. And so even spirit beings understood the authority of Jesus. Now, this is not something that we haven't seen before. We see it in the book of Mark. He's coming back to the same idea again, but this time with a little bit more umph, with a little more gusto in this story. And so we've seen this before in the book of Mark, that there's the kingdom of God coming in and, and taking on the kingdom of the enemy and Satan. And there's a war that happens on earth, and this explosion happens. And Jesus says, I'm going to win this war. In fact, the very deposit of that victory is my death on the cross and my burial and my resurrection. I will have victory over all uh, uh, negative spirit beings, demons, Satan himself, the whole bit. But we're in that flux of the already not yet. And so already has victory because of the victory we have in Christ on the cross, uh, buried, crucified, and risen. But at the same time, that won't come into its full uh, victory until Revelation time where where God throws Satan into the abyss and these demons with him and he does, he does away with them for good. And so that's what's gonna happen right now. We're just seeing the conflict that Mark's highlighting. And so it's obvious to these spirit beings that Jesus has authority over them. All right, and so what we, what we want to remember is that we've been a couple of weeks. So in chapter four, we ended with Jesus calming that great storm. You remember that? He went in the boat, and there was this big storm, and some commentators even believe that might have been a demonic storm. Uh, they all of a sudden came on, and then Jesus calmed the storm. So Jesus goes from calming this wild storm to now, in our text today, calming this wild man who definitely was demonized and under the influence of demons. And so I want to just kind of, kind of observe the differences of how the demon guy related to the city and then how he related to Jesus. Well, what are the differences of how he, his relationship with, with the city and the people and the town that he was living, and then what was the, what was the difference between that and the way he approached Jesus? Jesus. First of all, we see that he tortured the town. All right, we saw this early on that they, the guy lived amongst cave-like tombs. But they, they would take, uh, they would kind of uh, uh, in a rock little uh, on a hillside. There'd be rock structures, and they would kind of they would kind of uh, um, dig out holes in there, and they use them as tombs. And this guy would be hanging around those tomb-like areas, and um, and and. The book of Luke, actually, I'm sorry, the book of Matthew actually says he was so violent that nobody could even pass by. So if you, if you pass by the guy, he would beat you up. He was just so violent. You stayed away from the area. His area was a tomb where the dead people were, where the tombs were, kind of akin to a, a common, like an everyday cemetery. Uh, that's where he hung out. And, and then if you crossed him, he would come. And it's almost like a, like a, like a rated R movie, right? You know, like you, those scary movies, like guys hanging out with the graves, you know, all these dead people, zombie kind of thing. And, uh, and if you passed him, he would come kill you type of thing. And so that's what's going on. He basically torturized or terrorized the town. Uh, in the Talmud, which would be kind of religious or Jewish religious tradition and, and culture, um, it, there's four ways to mark a madman. 
And the four ways you would know if somebody was mad would be they were running at night, running about at night. Uh, they would spend the night in grave sites, and they would tear their clothes and destroy anything that was given to them. And so this idea that we see in the movies today, uh, it wasn't invented last year, this whole idea of the tombs and grave sites and zombies. And all that. That, that was something that was, uh, you know, biblical times. Uh, you could know somebody's mad if they're running at not running around at night, if they're hanging around gravesite areas, uh, if they're breaking everything that's given to them, and if they're tearing their clothes, you know, kind of like a good, you know, Friday the 13th kind of movie. And so uh, it's not unlike what we have, you know, our zombie fascination, uh, fascination in America today. Do you know there's a zombie fascination in America? I, went, I flew like five years ago uh, to go see the 49ers play the Denver Broncos in Denver. Uh, flew there, and the whole idea is we're going to go there, we're going to take over the town, and we're going to beat the Broncos. Didn't happen. It was horrible. Peyton Manning actually broke the touchdown record, and everybody was, you know, they stopped the game for 15 minutes and took pictures. It was horrible. I go there to see the Niners win, and I see Peyton Manning, you know. Anyway, and so we, we go there, and the whole idea was to have fun and represent the 49ers and go to another town. Right? Well, the night before, we said, well, let's go downtown, you know. Let's just hang out downtown. Let's figure out what Denver has to offer. We go downtown, and they're in the midst of a zombie crawl. You know what this is? Um, they were trying to, to, to um, break the Guinness Book World Record of the number of zombies that would crawl in one city at one time. And so I'm downtown, you know. <laughs> I'm serious. I'm downtown trying to get a Starbucks coffee, and I say, uh, you know, they're, they're all, and they're running, and, they're, and I'm like, I grew up in the hood, and I think we're going to die. There was 10,000 of them, okay? You could not, everywhere you look, you saw them. They, were, they had the blood on them and everything. I'm like, what happened to Denver, Colorado? It wasn't until we got back to our hotel room that we found out, oh, there's a zombie crawl they were trying to break, and they didn't break it. They're like, oh, we didn't break it. We'll have to try again next year, <laughs> you know, type of thing. Um, very, very weird experience, but that's kind of like what you got going on in the text. Is it, uh, you know, a lot, of, a lot of Satan stuff, a lot of evil stuff, a lot of, and it's real. It's real. I'm not trying to pretend that it's not real. It's real. According to the Bible, it's real. In fact, it's so real that there's a double emphatic in the Greek that says, no one any longer could bind the guy. No one could any longer bind, bind the guy. He was, he was not subduable. It's the same word we would use to, to tame a wild animal. You couldn't tame that wild animal. He couldn't tame him. He had superhuman strength. He was screaming. He was cutting himself with stones. He, he would shatter the idea. He would take the chains that you would take, and he would just shatter them like this, like it was pottery. And they just fall. Metal, just pottery, fall. They just crumble into pieces. That's how strong the guy was, according to the Bible. That's what it says. And I got to tell you, this is, this is well out of my comfort zone as a believer in Jesus Christ. I, I'm not into this whole satanic realm. Um, I, I don't like thinking about things like that. I don't, I don't like, enjoy the idea that there are people out there that can have superhuman strength and, and, and those type of things. I, I, I have a hard time with the concept that people can be possessed or oppressed by demons or, or evil or things like that. But it's written in the Bible, and there's nothing in the Bible that says it can't happen again today. So I'm just going to be honest with you. This is why I don't watch a lot of those rated R crazy scary movies because I feel like I don't want to give any foothold into the enemy. Now, some people love those things and they can watch those things and they don't have nightmares and I have nightmares and so I don't watch them. But the, but the idea is you got to be careful. The evil world is real. It is real. It is out there and it is real. There's a whole satanic uh, religion out there actually. You got to be careful of that kind of stuff. But I always come back to this passage in 1 John chapter 4 and verse 4 that says, greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. Remember I had some buddies when I was a new believer. I was 18 years old and we were driving. They go, we're going to take you to the haunted part of town. 
And I'm like, I don't, I'm not really into that. Well, we're going to take you. We're going to scare you. And they rolled down the window and, you know, made me stick my head out. And we're, you know, driving. And I remember just yelling, greater is he who's in me than he who's in the world. <laughs> it made me feel better. I wasn't scared anymore. You know, but that's the truth. Greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. You have no power over me, Satan. And we as believers in Christ should know that. that we, that's why people say the name of Jesus. There's power in his name. Absolutely. And so we don't, we're not driven to fear over these things. No, the evil realm uh, uh, submits to Jesus, bows to Jesus. According to our text, we see it. He has dominion over the evil realm. In fact, we see that in verse 6. Go back to verse 6 and you'll see it. It says, and when he saw Jesus at a distance, he fell on his knees in front of him, and he shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In fact, swear to me, or swear to God, that you won't torture me. And so here he is, you've got this scene, he's, he's on these little hills, he's hanging out in the tomb sites, he's doing the whole zombie thing, and then he sees a boat, he's like, oh great, another people I can terrorize, runs down towards Jesus. Then he realizes Jesus, oh wait a second, he can terrorize me, and he falls on his knees and he yells out to him, what do you want with me? What do you want with us? What, what, what do we have in common? Why are you here? What do you want with me, Jesus, son of Son of the Most High God, swear to us that you will not torture us. Interesting. So he comes in full recognition of God being superior, of Jesus Christ being superior. Falls on his knee, prostrating himself, understanding, whoa, I am lower, you are higher, is the idea. And full recognition, fully bowing down. And then he uses this phrase, the Most High God. This is an Old Testament terminology often used when there was a conflict between Israel and another people group, maybe Jewish versus Gentile. And once that conflict happened and the other people group realized that that the, the, the true God of Israel was superior, they would say, you have the Most High God. Your God is superior to the rest. That's the terminology this demon is using. You are superior, Jesus. You are the most, you are the God of the Old Testament. He's using that to refer to Jesus. And then he says, please, please don't torture us. Don't promise me you won't torture me. You didn't come. I know in the end I'm going to lose in this thing and I'm going to be sent into the abyss with Satan. You didn't come to send me there early, did you? Please don't torture us. Don't do that to us. And in irony of ironies, here you have this, these beings who were torturing the town, not realizing and being concerned over Jesus Christ being able to torture them. You see, there's no question the authority piece here. And there's so much in the realm of, 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 of the satanic. It's all about authority. And Jesus Christ saying, I have authority and dominion over you. I have authority and dominion. And they recognize, in fact, they would verbalize it. And oftentimes he would tell them to be quiet. And so we're going to see now how he exerts his authority over him. We'll go to verse 9 again. We'll just look at that again. Because, oh, wrong chapter. <laughs> there we go. Uh, then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again not to send them out of the area or into the abyss. A large herd of pigs was feeding near by the hillside, and the demons begged him, send us among the pigs, allow us to go into them. And he gave them permission, and the evil spirits came out, and went into the pigs, and the herd, about 2,000 in number, rushed down the steep bank into the lake, and they drowned. 
And so the first thing he does, he goes, I want to ask you your name. What is your name, demon? Now, this is kind of an interesting interplay that's going on here. It, it, was, it was popular Jewish thought that if you could know the name of the spirit being you were dealing with, you could control it. In fact, demons would use the same tactic on Jesus when they called him the most high God. We know your name. Maybe we can have control over you. And Jesus is almost saying, hey, no, that's not how it works when you're God. I'm going to ask you your name. I don't care if you know my name. I have control and dominion and authority over you. And so there's an interesting interplay going on there. I'm going to ask you your name so you know how this really works. The demon replies, my name is Legion because there are many. Legion was a, a phraseology that would be used. Uh, it's a Roman term that would symbolize a army regiment group of approximately 6,000 members. And so what he's saying is, Jesus, I, my name is Legion. There are so many of us in here. I don't, we don't have one name. We, have, we, have a, we are a Legion. We have many of us in here. And so the idea is, we can't give you just one name. We give you all of our names. Finally, they're kind of scared. What do we do? We submit to his authority. And hey, would you please let us go into these pigs? We know you're going to expel us. Maybe I just want to get out of his presence. Just get us in those pigs, and then we'll, we'll go to them. And interestingly enough, that they would have to ask Jesus to do that. What does that show you? Authority. We're not going to be able to go anywhere until Jesus allows us to go. And so they had to ask his permission, and they go to the unclean pigs, and I said evil pigs. Uh, the, the Jewish thought was that the pig itself was unclean. It was an unclean animal. Uh, you weren't allowed to touch them. You couldn't raise them type of thing. And so, so and you certainly didn't eat them. And so it would be appropriate in the Jewish mind that these demons would end up in pigs. Actually, probably would make them laugh. And the fact that they drowned themselves would make them laugh even more. And then we have this story at the very end. We hear that there's 2,000 pigs, and they all run into the lake, and they drown. And so we see, continue to see this conflict between God and Satan, and God continues to win. In fact, First uh, John chapter 3 and verse 8 says, The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. That's First John 3, 8. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. First John 3, 8, if you want to take a look at that later. Now, this has some... The, the fact that this story is shared in the way that it's shared has some especially um, um, significant impact considering the context. It's not like Jesus hadn't casted out demons prior. If you've been in our series, doll, you've seen him do this a couple times already where he's cast out a demon. But in this situation, we see the possibility of thousands of demons. His name is Legion, which is 6, 000, approximately 6,000 troops. Does that mean there are 6,000 demons in there? I don't know. We saw 2,000 pigs go into the, go into the waters. I mean, there was 2,000 uh, uh, spirits. That's the idea, that there was thousands of these things in there. And so this is, of all the exorcisms that Jesus did, this is the big one, all right? This is the monstrous one, all right? It wasn't just one demon, it's thousands. He actually named himself Legion, and so we know it's thousands. So why is this so significant? You gotta go back, if you remember week one of our series, and we talked about who Mark is writing to. Does anybody remember? This is worth 1,000 points. Okay, just went up to 10,000 points. <laughs> Who is Mark writing to? He's writing to a Roman audience, all right? So in his writing to a Roman audience, you gotta understand what do Romans value? 